Hello, everyone. You are now listening to Researcher's Digest, a radio show to keep us updated with the current research in science, with emphasis in physics, engineering, computer science, and psychology. I am your host, Jim, and here we have. And it's uh, Mitch. I'm back from a uh, back from last semester. Welcome aboard, Mitch. Now, before we get started, let's begin with the acknowledgement of country. Y'all listening to Warney Radio, produced on not all and every land. Ah, All right. So if you are a new listener to our show, um, this is Researchers Digest. Welcome. <laughs> um, this is our third consecutive semester running this show. Every week we try to aim to provide interesting topics in science and technology about all about the latest researches that's been going on around the world. So hopefully our content will be both highly engaging and informative. Uh, we have three hosts for our show. I'm Jim. We have Mitch today, and we also have Yaknish. So I'm Jim. I recently graduated from my degree with a major in physics and honors in astrophysics. And I'm Mitch. I uh, I'm still going with a double in psychology and computer science. And Yaknish, our third host, who's not here today, um, has engineering background. And every week we will host a show with two hosts, and we'll rotate among three of us. We will also sometimes invite guest speakers throughout the semester for any interesting research topics that they do. So, for today's topic, I have got two um, physics slash mathematics topics to present, and Mitch has one psychology topic, I believe. Yep, just the one psychology. I usually try to do a computer science topic as well, but this week's just a psych paper. All right. So uh, let's get into it. Sounds good. So my first topic is about a room temperature superconductor that's recently been discovered. That sounds pretty groundbreaking. I remember studying this back in high school and it was... Oh, did you? Yeah, no. I, the most memorable thing I think I remember from, from that year was uh, researchers accidentally... They were celebrating, I think, after a breakthrough in this research. And they cracked open a bottle of wine and thought, what the hell, let's test our material and add some wine in with it. And somehow they got better results. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure if urban myth, but I like the story. I can believe that. That's science. That's science. <laughs> now, do you know what superconductivity is? Oh, vaguely. Uh, I'll, I'll give it a shot. So superconductivity is when you can conduct electricity through a material with uh, zero resistance. So it's sort of like a... Um, free flow of electricity. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So oh, usually... I sorry? I should do physics. You should, you should. <laughs> Not related to another thing, um, major. Um, with conductivity, um, I'm sure you've learned this like in high school in physics classes. For example, a metal wire that will conduct, and then if you pull like a rubber like, in, in the past, that you block the electricity because you have too much resistance. Makes sense. That's why you wear rubber shoes, right? Stepping out of a car. Yeah, that's exactly no. right. Yeah. Now, superconductivity is exactly as you said. It's a it's a set of physical properties that's observed in certain materials where the electric resistance vanishes. 
And also, in addition, there is a magnetic flux field that's, that's expelled from the material. Um, with ordinary, ordinary conductors, the resistance of them would decrease gradually as its temperature is lowered. Now, a superconductor has a characteristic critical temperature below which the resistance drops abruptly to zero. An electric current through a loop of superconducting wire can persist indefinitely with no power source. It's pretty interesting that the, um, the, the drop is related that way to temperature instead of being like a, a smooth linear um, line down to zero, maybe at like, I don't know. Yeah, with regular materials, it's a smooth line, but then it doesn't really get down to zero. It can get really close to zero, but it doesn't really get to zero. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, superconductor is a special material with such property that once it goes over a critical temperature, it drops immediately to zero. Instantly. Yeah. This type of material it was first discovered in 1911. And since then, we have there uh, have applications, including um, superconducting magnets, which is very useful in cases such as MRI machines, mass spectrometers, or beam-guiding ma magnets in accelerators. So why are they useful for, for magnets here? It looks like they're maybe being used for. Um, with super, a magnet essentially has a lot of free charges because magnets create magnetic field and a magnetic field is created by moving charges. Mm -hmm. So with essentially a conductor with very mobile electric charges, you naturally assume that you create a very powerful magnet. Okay. Uh, and I guess, yes, yeah, so up until now, the, the cost of keeping... Because they have to be kept cool, right, for it to be superconductive, these materials. Previously. Yeah, that's that's right. So it's just more expensive to build a, a really powerful magnet out of non-superconductive material then. Um, yeah, for a, if you need a really powerful magnet, then you either have to cool superconductive materials down to really low temperatures. That will increase the cost. Mm. Or, or you can make, like, just like expensive magnet, like make really big ones. And just keep pumping energy yeah, into it yeah. to, to offset the resistance. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I'll briefly go into why they need to be uh, at really low temperatures so we can get into why the significance of discovering a room temperature um, superconductor. So the explanation for superconductors was first attempted to be explained by three different physicists they came up with this theory called the BCS theory, which essentially explains that um, electrons in of the superconductors, they are grouped into pairs through interaction with vibrations of the lattice. So the lattice is like any material, like a, a crystal, for example, and the ions and, and molecules inside form like a solid lattice. Okay. Um, these electrons are formed into pairs called Cooper pairs, which move around inside the solid without friction. Um, so the solid can be seen as the lattice of positive ions, as, I, as explained. And as an electron passes through this lattice, the ions will move slightly, and which is attracted by the electron's negative charge. 
and this movement of these positive ions will generate an electrically positive area, which in turn attracts another electron from the surra surrounding. The energy of the electron interaction is quite weak, and the pairs can be easily broken up by thermal energy. So you can, you can imagine that as two, uh, a group of pairs travel through um, the lattice, and uh, it kind of forms a, a wave. Okay. And if you have higher temperature, that temperature is essentially the random movements of molecules inside a body. Mm -hmm. If there are too much movement, then this wave would be cancelled out. Gotcha. It's like so trying to create a ripple in inside the ocean. So is it some particular property of the lattice structure that causes a superconductivity? Like are there materials that form a lattice that will aren't superconductors of some temperatures? Surely. Yeah, it the ones that are superconductive, they all depend on of course the molecular structure of the lattice. So it's like specific yeah, yeah. kind of okay. yeah. You can you can have uh, many different combinations. You can have different like structures or different atoms. Now you, you know the periodic table with uh, 108 elements, mm -hmm. 118. Sorry, when and then you can create all sorts of combinations. Gotcha. Okay. So this new finding of the room temperature as well as ambient pressure superconductor, it was found where by a team of Korean scientists, and they published their findings on 22nd of July, which was actually two weeks ago. Wow, yeah, damn, this is hot off the press science, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you, that's uh, our purpose as um, researchers, researchers, digest broadcasters. <laughs> we give the most updated science as possible. Noted, no historical papers. <laughs> This new type of material is called LK99. You can easily look it up. It's a lead-based copper-doped material, which is made by first preparing a well-characterized mineral um, from lead oxide and lead sulfate. Separately, copper phosphide, which is another well-characterized compound, is also freshly prepared from elemental copper and phosphorus. These two substances are ground together in a one-to-one -one ratio, and the mixture is sealed in a vacuum-evacuated quartz cube and heated to 925 degrees Celsius, thus forming the LK99. Yeah, this sounds like some uh, crazy scene from Iron Man. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I've seen this before. <laughs> well, in short, it's basically just a bunch of chemicals. They mix them together, and then they form this. Uh, they, they mix them together, they heat it up, and then... They formed a superconductor material. Amazing. I didn't see any wine involved in this in this recipe. I'm a little bit disappointed. I, I can't lie. Maybe you should tell them to add some yeah. wine to see what happens. <laughs> Get your name published in the paper. Um, this material has a critical temperature of 127 degrees Celsius. Just let that sink in for a minute. Normally, su with superconductors, most of them are lower than minus like 100 and something Celsius. Yeah. Now this one is, the critical temperature is actually higher than the boiling point of water. I Sorry, I'm just scrolling up back in the notes to the title of this, LK99 Room Temperature Superconductor. So I guess uh, we'll up, like, 
Including room temperature. Including. Okay. It's more like a boiling water superconductor. Yeah, unless you keep your, <laughs> your house at 120 degrees, do you? Yeah, this is actually very insane. Yeah, probably normally, okay. Yeah, like normally we expect like minus, like over, below minus 100 degrees Celsius. Yeah. So, of course, like the science community was obviously like fascinated by this result and... There'll be a lot of experiments trying to replicate this. And also scientists trying to explain why this material has such a high critical temperature. One of the explanations developed by the authors, they believe that the structure of their material creates a large number of quantum wells between particular lead atoms and oxygen atoms. And they propose that electron tunnel between these quantum wells, which are between 3.7 and 6.3 angstroms apart, is the superconducting mechanism. A quantum well, okay. I, I'm not too familiar with that. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that must have sounded very unfamiliar to our listeners as well, especially those without any physics background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure you've heard of quantum mechanics. It's a very marketed term. <laughs> yes, no. Uh, I went to Oppenheimer. I'm uh, a big fan of the quantum realm. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, quantum mechanics is to do with the physics of the very small particles. And in this research, we're looking at um, atoms and molecules. So obviously, you expect to see some quantum effects. Mm-hmm. Um, if you take the um, second year physics course at ENU, then the quantum course would teach you about what quant- a quantum well is. So if you imagine a well, so you have like a platform and then you have a, s- a section that goes below below the ground, mm-hmm. forming a well, it essentially describes the probability in that region such that a particle or an electron has a high chance of being inside that region. Okay, so kind of like a, a gathering point particle? Yeah, precisely. So if you have this sort of gathering point, these pockets between certain atoms and like at different atoms inside the lattice. And then also quantum mechanics has a property called quantum tunneling. Mm-hmm. Um, it's essentially that particles have a slight chance of going through a barrier, an energy barrier, even when the particles themselves do not have enough energy to cross that barrier. It's a bit like you're throwing a tennis ball against a wall. Most of the time, you will bounce back, but then there's a chance that you'll go through the wall. You know what, Jim? Every time that I uh, swing and miss when I'm playing tennis, <laughs> I'm going to blame it on this effect. I, I think that's what's happening when I'm playing, all right? I, I think so, too. <laughs> there you go. That's the explanation. Next time you air swing, you just, the ball just kind of tunneled. I mean... Exactly. Yeah. There's no hole in my racket. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so this sort of quantum tunneling of the electrons allows the movement of electrons, and the movement of electrons will generate current. So this is what causes this superconducting phenomenon. Okay. I'm sorry. So yeah. the... So is it the case that these particles tend to, like, 
they're gathering up in these quantum wells and then quantum tunneling sort of allows them to jump between the wells and they sort of stay in those pockets. They'll jump around. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And you have many different quantum worlds between every gap between the atoms. Yeah. So the electrons can jump around different wells. Okay, gotcha. And so it's the absence of a lot of quantum wells where particles will like clash into one of these ions, say, and that's what creates resistance? Um, yeah, in a classical sense, yeah. yeah. Okay. And quantum tunneling is an instantaneous sort of phenomenon, which, yeah, which is why you see no resistance, hence superconducting. Okay. Yeah, interesting. Now, in making these sort of claims, the authors, of course, they have to provide a good deal of data to back it up. They show data from, for example, that X-ray diffraction, EPR, and many more. And they also demonstrated the behaviors that a superconductor should have, such as the expulsion of a magnetic field, a sudden resistivity change at a critical temperature. If this data can be reproduced, then the superconductivity of this material seems beyond doubt. So now labs around the world will be trying to reproduce this result. If this result is true, then this will be truly a world-changing discovery. Yeah, if, if I'm not wrong, I, I remember some of the implications of finding a room temperature superconductive material being things like, um, basically after, after initially buying a battery, you just get free power storage. Once you have it, you just funnel it into a super superconducting battery and there'll be sort of what no resistance strainer over time yeah um basically all our electronics will be affected by it yeah now, I, I don't know the details in terms of like what are the exact things we can do with it but then there'll be a scientist doing into research into this material quite trying to create unlock more properties of it and who knows what we expect yeah, so so far the initial results has been very promising. Some institutes have been able to um, reproduce it in at least in the early stages. And also some theoretical framework also shows that it could very well work. So is there any work into seeing how this material might conduct an orchestra? A super Okay, Mitch, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> but yeah, that's it. Um, there'll be some really good things to expect if this superconducting material does work very well. Um, we'll be hearing a lot more from it, hopefully. Yeah, I, I can't wait to see um, what they can make out of this thing. This, this will be one of the... Um, I don't know, I guess a few things that you'll bring onto the show, Jim, that I can actually like sort of understand <laughs> from what I've studied back in high school. Oh, Yagnes will bring so much of this into his engineering topics if this does work. Anyways, this is the end of our first topic. Um, between every topic, we'll have a short music break. So we'll be right back. We would like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people who are the traditional custodians of the land on which Wurundjeri is created. We pay respects to elders past, present and emerging.
Copyright in these lectures is either owned by the ANU or a third party who has licensed the ANU to use it. Students may use the recording for personal study only. No lecture may be communicated online, copied or shared without the prior permission of the ANU. Space. Final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Woroni. Its five-year mission, produced on Nanawal and Nambri land, to seek out new life and new civilizations. Boldly go where no radio has gone before. Yilma, you're listening to Veroni Radio, produced on Ngunnawal and Nambri land. Hey, and we're back. Sorry about that. We were just having some technical difficulties with uh, <laughs> the music, but I hope you enjoyed some of those sound bites. They were very fun to watch playing on the computer, but that's not, I think, the playlist that's meant to be on. <laughs> anyway, so uh, moving on, we'll move over to my topic in psychology. So um, when I was looking around for something to talk about, this article crossed my eye. It looks like a bit of a BuzzFeed kind of thing. Um, it was uh, 50 terms or phrases in psychology and psychiatry that are misleading, ambiguous, or confused. Okay, let's hear it. So, um, psychology has struggled a bit with terminology historically. Um, a fun example of this uh, that the paper mentioned were the jingle and jangle fallacies, <laughs> where you erroneously refer to the same construct by different names, all refer to two different constructs by the same name, right? So jingle is two different names, jangle is one name, two constructs. Um, okay. <laughs> so an example of this is, uh, so in the past there's been a bit of a problem where trait anxiety and trait fear have both been called anxiety. They've just been batched in together. But the problem is that um, there's evidence to suggest they're only moderately correlated and can be caught in different ways. And uh, in 2014, there was a researcher that named uh, the deja variable problem, which referred to a tendency for researchers to make new labels for phenomena that have already been named and studied previously. So you have some 
grand idea about some kind of um, trait or um, observation in human behavior and you don't realize it's already been well studied before. So you give it a new name and okay. uh, call it your own. <laughs> so this has been a lot of just different names to refer to the same thing. Yeah, so uh, one example is uh, the false consensus effect. So this is just an effect where uh, it's a cognitive bias where you see your own views or behavior as like common, but alternative views you see as deviant or like um, and less common. Okay. Um, so this false consensus effect had 15 different terms actually to, to name the same thing. Everyone or different people thought that they had sort of independently or independently studying something unique when <laughs> we're looking at the same thing. So okay. I'm sure you can imagine it, it, it's kind of just a property of a bit of a, a vague field where you're doing a lot of inference about different processes that are kind of um, abstract or like sort of under the water if we're looking at it as an, an iceberg kind of thing. And um, if you just have different people looking at the same problem, they might think that they're actually different problems when, when they aren't. So this article is just addressing um, sort of just interesting words and phrases that uh, can be I don't know, somewhat problematic. Kay. Okay, let's hear some. Okay, so uh, the first one was a gene for insert something here. So you might have seen some headline or a researcher finding like a gene for schizophrenia or a gene for aggression or a gene for liberalism. Okay. Have you seen anything like that, Jin? Um, I might have, but I've never consciously like remember any. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I have. Yeah, there's like you might see on Facebook, like we found a gene for happiness or like a gene for intelligence or something. I don't know. Okay. Um, but this has cropped up in the literature as well. So in 2009, there were claimed to have found a warrior gene, uh, one called monoamine oxidase A. So it was supposed to be a gene that was associated with sort of uh, aggression. Um, and in reality, uh, genomic studies of psychiatric disorders haven't found any particular genes that are majorly influential. And this is probably the case for personality traits as well. <laughs> so we aren't going to find a particular gene for some behavior. You can't change one gene and, uh, well, you can't change genes, but anyway. So it's, just, it's a very misleading concept that a, a gene is responsible for some sort of behavior that exhibit. Yeah, exactly. I, if anything, it's a combination of many different genes and of course envi uh, your environment. So things like experiences can influence and shape the way that you um, develop or behave or think. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so the next one, uh, brain region X lights up. Okay. <laughs> so you might've heard some study that had participants, they, they do something like write a letter of gratitude, maybe. And researchers found that a certain brain region lights up, right? Have you heard of anything like that? Actually, not, not really. But I, when I first saw it, I thought of as you have different parts of the brain that's responsible for different activities that you do. Yeah, exactly. And to, to an extent, um, there is like a, a division of responsibilities. It's pretty complicated. Um, when you look into different brain, like for example, um, there's uh, kind of like a visual pathway, a pathway that visual information follows. It's around the, the, the back of the brain and like, um, goes through sort of the optical nerve to the back and wraps back around and all this is sort of the 
um, optical pathway. But the sort of the, the specific terminology of the brain, that brain region lighting up is a bit difficult. So um, there are a few reasons for that. So I think one of the biggest ones is um, in fMRI scans, brain regions that the scan is looking for is lit it will it is represented by red and yellow colors so it visually looks like it is lighting up but that's sort of just an artifact of how the scan is visualized right it's not actually oh uh, okay um, and secondly uh, fmri so this scan measures uh, blood flow and oxygen reuptake in certain brain regions so this is used as a proxy for which brain regions are actually sort of um, being used by some task. And that's what that seemed to have lighted up. Yeah, so this fMRI, it, it sort of detects blood flow and blood density in different brain regions. And you infer from that that if there's blood flowing to that region, then it must be being used, right? Yeah. Sort of like muscles. Like if yeah, if yeah, makes sense. Yeah. So what you're trying to say that is brain don't actually light up. No, not really. Um, so, well, mm, caveat. Um, so, there's been evidence to suggest that uh, when this blood does actually um, move into a particular brain region, sometimes that part of the brain is being inhibited. So, it isn't actually being activated more, it's being very intentionally shut down. So, in that case of like being lit down, not lit up, because <laughs> lit up kind of evokes a sense of more electrical activity, right? Yeah, with the opposite? Um, it can be the opposite, yeah. So, the uh, again, all that scan is really telling you is that there's blood flow to the region. It doesn't really tell you, well, uh, from this last point, it doesn't tell you that there's actually more electrical activity or that it's being lit up. Okay. But yeah, so brain region lights up. If anyone tells you that, folks, X to doubt, okay? <laughs> okay, next one. Um, bystander apathy. This one, um, you run into bystander apathy in um, undergrad psych. It's a pretty interesting phenomenon, but um, let's test your intuition here, Jim. Okay. All right, so let's say you fainted, all right? I fainted. You fainted. I, I fainted on the street. Happens a lot, right? Yeah. You party hard. Okay, so there are three people around, let's say. Three people around that can see you fainted on the street. How likely is it? do you think that you will get help? Ooh, would it depend on who those three people are? Um, it would, but let's say like average across 50 trials where there are fr three people. You fainted on the street 50 independent times. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. So would I get help or not from the three people? Is that your question? Yeah, or like how likely or, is or it? Or how likely? Yeah. Do you think someone will come to help you? Or yes, no, maybe? Um... I think it depends on where I am, um, <laughs> but enough, on, 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 on average, <laughs> in, in over, overall, 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 um, um, I'll say uh, maybe thirty percent chance. Thirty percent chance. Yep, okay, yeah, fair enough. Okay, and now let's change the scenario a little bit. Let's say there are fifty people around. How likely is it? Do you think that you'll get help? Will it be more or less? Be the same. Be the same. No, it should be more. Should be more. Yeah. yeah. Makes sense, right? More people around to sort of see you and 
Yeah. Um, like maybe there'll be someone around that actually has the expertise to come and help you. Maybe there's more likely for there to be a doctor or a nurse or something, right? Yeah. So um, that would be my intuition as well. But the bystander apathy effect. Um, well, this is research that was done back in the 60s. So I'm sorry, it's not very exciting to watch. But um, it was looking into people's tendencies to help out in an emergency when there is more or less people around or when there is a crowd or not. And uh, what tends to happen is when more people are around, uh, people or any one person will, is, is less likely to step in and help. Wow. Um, okay. I can, I can see that. I mean, if you pointed it out, um, is it because that there are more people around you that you are less likely to take action? Yeah, yeah. You don't want to stand out from the crowd. Yes. It's like you kind of, you, you worry about, exactly, standing out from the crowd, doing what everyone else appears not to be. Um, and there's some, some pretty crazy footage of, yeah, people uh, like faint in the street or something uh, in a test. Um, and crowds of people just sort of walk around them. They, they ignore them. Um, but the name of this phenomenon, bystander apathy, it kind of uh, hints that the reason for, for this lack of help is that people just don't care, right? They're apathetic. But uh, a little bit more research has been done, and it turns out that these people in the crowd, they are concerned. They, they recognize that the person um, might need help. But th there are a couple of things going on. One is called uh, diffusion of responsibility. So that's just the idea that when there's a great number of people that could be responsible for a task, it's unclear that it's yours. So okay. people feel less personal responsibility to take action when they feel that there are lots of other people that could. Makes sense. And um, another one is, yeah, fear of appearing foolish for, for being just, yeah, that, that one person that stepped up. Mm. Yeah, this is actually quite sad to think about it. Yeah, right? It's, it's interesting how if I don't know, you, you're just less likely to to, to want to help someone if it means going against the grain. Um, but it's just interesting because everyone in the crowd feels guilty for, or feels concerned and probably feels guilty for not, for not helping, but just that lack of communication, that lack of understanding that everyone feels the same way you do um, mm. kind of prevents you from acting up. It's kind of like, I mean, I'm sure we can all empathize with this actually, if you've ever been in a really confusing lecture, right? <laughs> and you can be pretty sure that no one else knows what's going on, <laughs> but no one wants to ask a question because no one else has their hand up. So what if you're the one person that <laughs> asks the question and it's like, what, you don't understand that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I totally understand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, okay. All right, so next one, Jim. This is one that I think a lot more people will be familiar with, but the lie detector test. Oh, I've heard of it. Right? I've heard of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, someone asks you a compromising question, and the machine detects whether you're lying or not. There's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of YouTube videos on this. Okay. It's classic. Let's hear about it. Um. So uh, basically, uh, oh well, actually, I've got, so I've got my notes here. A particular <laughs> recommendation: this old TV show, Moment of Truth. Have you heard of this, Jim? I haven't. Okay. It, it's very fun. It's diabolical. I, I would highly recommend it. But basically, okay, participants, they're hooked up to a polygraph, 
and they're asked a bunch of touchy questions. So, you know, have you um, done anything risque? Have you been faithful in your relationship? Have you ever stolen anything like that, right? Mm -hmm. And then after this test, the, the actual like panel show starts. So this poor person is placed in front of a panel, all right, <laughs> with their family and their friends and a live audience. And they have to go back through all of these questions and um, they'll be asked like true or false on <laughs> all these all these questions, and their answer has to match what the polygraph thinks is true. Oh, so and if the the, the um, of course the compensation is if they if they answer truthfully, they they win more and more and more money. But they're answering more and more relationship and <laughs> just life destructive oh, no. questions. <laughs> Okay, but the catch, okay, what does the polygraph actually do? It doesn't measure when you're lying. It measures something called arousal, okay, which is just when it's a psychophysiological sort of state of being stimulated or very awake. Yep. So I'm sure you can imagine when you're lying, it's stressful for most people. So in a sense, it does capture when you lie if um, you get highly stressed and highly aroused. But I'm sure you can imagine if I ask you a bunch of stressful questions, even if there isn't really anything interesting that you could answer to, like everything's false, um, just being asked those questions would be kind of a stressful experience. Or yes, maybe definitely. you have a, I don't know, a close friend or a family member that has done something in these questions and you think of that and it's just like this stressful kind of memory for you or something. So if the polygraph is interpreting that arousal as lying, then it's bad data, it's useless. Yeah. And um, yeah, you can see this happening in that show. So participants get bummed out for giving, you know, a quote unquote incorrect answer, according to the lie detector. And their face when they hear the answer is like, what? That's not true. <laughs> what, uh, what the hell? Okay, so the lie detector basically only detects how your blood pressure or physical changes that happens. Exactly, yeah. 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 So there, there are a number of sort of tests of this. So there's blood pressure, there's heart rate, there's um, a sharp change in heart rate. There are other things like, um, I don't know, breathing rate. Are you um, like perspirating, things like that. These yeah. are all things that are sort of correlated with being stressed or um, aroused. Okay, how are we going for time? All right, I might just do a couple more. Yeah, no worries. So, um, a quickie bit of goodie, uh, a steep learning curve, okay? So, turns out um, that, well, a steep learning curve, it, we usually mean that to refer to uh, a task that's difficult to learn. Yeah. So, turns uh, out that in the, oh, I'm sorry, Jim. Yeah, I'm saying that, I've heard of that many times. Um, and yeah, I, I've heard that too. I was, I was super surprised when I saw this on the list, but it turns out that according to the learning literature, uh, a steep learning curve means that in a short amount of time, you can quickly master, master a task. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is just a case of um, uh, the same term being used to refer to different things. I, I don't know about you, but whenever I hear steep learning curve, I think of like, the amount of effort it takes yeah. to like learn something. It's like yeah. more effortful to learn. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's what I think about. Yeah, it, it sounds like in this specific literature, um, 
it's the like how much skill can you gain per unit of time so it's just reverse which i'm sure that's ripped up a lot of researchers but we don't have to worry about that too much okay the next one looks very interesting yeah last one okay i have to admit i do kind of roll my eyes a bit when i hear this as a psych student but (laughs) had a lot of uh business friends (laughs) ask me (laughs) What's what's your MBTI or something? I think it is MBTI. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So yes, Myers Briggs tests. Okay. So have you ever done one of those? Um, yes, I have. You have? Yeah. Um, I've I've read quite a lot about it actually. Yeah. Um, I find it quite interesting. So what do you have to say as a psych student? As a psych student, well, it it's interesting. So from what I understand, it's a little bit of like a rebranded, repackaged, um, like five factor personality scale. So. The five factor um, is a very well researched and validated um, sort of constellation of personality traits in um, personality psychology. Um, and so, yes, yeah, very well established. You've got, oh, gee, let's see if I can remember it. You've got openness, uh, conscientiousness, extroversion. Um, A is for, um, I forget, but N is for neuroticism. A is for agreeableness, that's right. But there are these sort of five dimensions that people vary along. Um, okay. And that sort of, y- you can um, get a good grasp of someone's personality from, from measuring those five dimensions. And the Myers-Briggs test sort of um, takes those dimensions. I believe that adds an extra one, there's six. Um, I could be wrong on that, I'm not too sure. Okay, the, the, s- the exact terms used are different in, in those tests. Yeah, oh, so from, from what I've heard, um, it's sort of like, um, so neurotic, neuroticism, for example, it's sort of intuitively a, a bad thing to be highly neurotic because you're very sort of stressed or emotionally turbulent. But in the Myers-Briggs test, they've repackaged that to sort of have positive connotations to, to all ends of all of these scales or both ends of all of these scales. So um. Um, I forget what it is, but like maybe it's, sensitive or something or feeling yeah i'm not too sure what it is in myers-briggs but um anyway so this isn't specific to the myers-briggs test so i don't want to rag on it too much but this paper um as problematic it uh names the term personality type um it specifically calls it an oxymoron (laughs) so it doesn't like the idea of personality being type (laughs) okay so um the the idea is that Personality traits can be broken down into groups or clusters, like you're an extrovert, you're an introvert, you're logical, you're feeling. So you you cannot do that? You can't do that quite in the way that it sort of is packaged as doing. So you don't, you aren't able to sort of test your introversion. And if the test says you are introverted, you belong in like sort of a markedly distinct group of introverts. And then over here on the other side, um, very different to you are the extroverts. So there's sort of like two camps and it's sort of... But like can you have a spectrum? Yes, you can have a spectrum. That's the real case? Yes. So um, especially on these sort of um, like these five-factor personality types, how the distribution actually works is it's like a normal distribution. So most people are sort of around the mean and then as you get further and further out on one of these scales, there's fewer and fewer people. Okay. Actually, with one of the Myers-Briggs tests that I've done, it actually breaks down into different facts, different uh, groups, and then you, they give you a percentage for ev- each one. For example, introversion, 
extroversion and then there's like thinking, feeling gives you a percentage. Yeah, yeah. And it's usually some, I, I believe it works out to like the percentages you are more of, so let's say introversion, like you are more introverted than this percentage of people. So it's like where in the distribution you fall. Oh, is that, is that the case? I think so. Um, and so what, what that does kind of let you say is um, wherever you are on this dimension, on the spectrum of this personality trait, um, you can easily say that you are more introverted than most people, right? Yeah, okay. Because if you are, say, um, more introverted than 65% of people, you're a little bit to the right of the mean on that distribution. So you can say that, yeah, you're more introverted than most people. It's just the case that when you say something like that, most of the time it's not super interesting because... Um, most people will say something like that and still be clustered very tightly around the mean because it's a normal distribution. Yeah. So it, it might mean that you're, I don't know, a little bit more introverted than most people. Mm -hmm. But um, it's a bit different from having something more bimodal. So you have two very like categorically or d uh, distinct groups, introverts and extroverts. And you can tell immediately like, okay, this person is in the introvert camp. Um, okay, so it doesn't like to be grouped. That's what you're saying, what the, what the paper is saying. Yeah, it, it's um, it's just trying to, to affirm that the difference between people most of the time is actually very small. You can't, and it's not really, that the variance between people isn't explained by there being different types of people just small differences along a dimension. Yeah, okay. Uh, actually, in the, like, in the math bricks test, like you have on one end, you have introversion, on the other end, other end you have extroversion. You go from zero to 100. Mm. So if you do ask them to do the test, you give you a percentage. So if you, if you land on like 40%, you, you, you classify you as introvert. If yep. you land on like 51, you classify as extrovert. Exactly, exactly. So okay. You, it, it's entirely possible to have an introvert and an extrovert and they'll be, or as so classified, an introvert and an extrovert and they'll be almost identical in terms of, you know, attitudes towards like how draining a social situation is. Yeah. And then you can take an introvert and another introvert and they'll be wildly different. Like one is, like one might be, I think ambivert is, is a bit of a, okay. <laughs> a phrase now, so like sort of close <laughs> to the middle. And then someone is very, very introverted. Like social interactions are extremely draining for them. Mm. So yeah, it, it's just the case that a personality type doesn't make an awful lot of sense because everyone falls somewhere on a spectrum. And um, dividing that spectrum up into two halves is kind of arbitrary. So identifying very strongly with one side might not very communicate very much. Yeah, okay. I do have a question. This might be unrelated, sure. but do you think personality, like this, where you see on the spectrum, can change over time? And oh, so like people's measured personality can change as they age. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. There's um, there's a lot of research into this. Um, so I think one dimension that decreases with age is openness. So openness is. Um, Intuitively, it's like openness to new experience. How, how adventurous are you? 
Okay. Um, and I think typically openness is higher when you are younger and it decreases with age. So you become less open to new experiences and you sort of fall into your patterns and your ways. Um, yeah, and that yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Like you've got an, an intuitive sense of this as well because like, you know, like oh, old timers can't, like can't teach an old dog new tricks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, no, there, there's more research for the for other traits. But yeah, absolutely. No, personality does change as you age. Yeah, that's very that's very interesting because I've done some reading about the Myers-Briggs personalities types, mm-hmm. and I think it claimed that your person, your fundamental personality, is what your your true self is. That it doesn't really change over time. So like the reason that you oh. you get different test results is because the way you answer the questions are different when you test when you take the test at a different time. But the way you think and function is going to be mostly the same. Yeah. That's a, a bit of a an airy sort of <laughs> way of putting it, I think. Like <laughs> there's something deeper than this test that is stable, but this test isn't stable, so don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's what it was trying to say. Yeah. Um so Personality can change over time, but there is significant correlation between sort of tests and retests of personality sort of measures. So, um, if uh, so, for example, like someone takes a personality test, maybe not the Myers Briggs, maybe like a a Big Five or something a little bit more validated, um, and you ask them to take it again at a later point, they you can still use their previous test to sort of base your expectation. There's, there, there is some level of consistency in, in your personality and, and how it tests. Okay. So there is, yeah, I guess you can think of it as something fundamental to you. Mm. Okay, but out of context, there's something interesting that I, I once tried. Oh, yeah? <laughs> so for the MySpeaks test, um, I used the 16 personalities website. And for every question they ask you, you have five options. So from strongly disagree to disagree to neutral, agree to strongly agree. Yeah. You have five these five options. And depending on the question asked, you, you, you have to pick an answer. Yes. So I once did the test choosing only either strongly disagree or agree and nothing in between. <laughs> and I got the yep. same result as doing it properly. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> um, were a lot of your numbers sort of clustered around the middle, or were they close to the middle? Um, not all of them were close to the middle. Yeah. There were some distributions. Yeah. So and the same thing happened to my friend. Inter- <laughs> I, I will say, um, I guess it's not entirely surprising, because so, so the way a lot of it is scored is that, so you'll have those five options, and then from like strongly disagree might be minus two, disagree might be minus one, neutral will be zero. Then one. That's what two. I thought. But once you chose neutral for everything, it's not everything like fifty percent. There, there was some distribution. Yeah. Yes, and that kind of makes sense, I think, because it's all relative, right? So, say you have um, questions that are specifically about. Um, introversion, maybe, and yeah. It's, so it's if you choose neutral, that will give you some score to one side. 
Yeah, so it, yeah, it yeah. could be the case that like across all people, um, the, the the actual numerical number from from summing all of the all of those scored answers, it actually isn't zero. It's somewhere to to either side. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So uh, normally distributed data, but not necessarily exactly around zero. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. So yeah, as you are saying that this this new research basically shows wants to say that personality should not be like categorized so strictly. It's more of a spectrum. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, that's it from me. Um, there were there were more in this paper, but I think these were some of the most interesting um, misleading terms in psychology. Yeah, that they were very interesting. And uh, yeah, and we don't have enough time to cover our third topic, but that's totally fine. <laughs> this happens quite often. <laughs> <laughs> Easy prep for next week, Jim. Yep. All right. I hope you enjoyed our two topics today. And if you're a new viewer, stay tuned for our show every week. Our show runs from 5 to 6 every Monday during the semester. Anything to add? Awesome. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. It's uh, good to be back. I hope you enjoyed this semester of research at Stitex. Yeah. Hopefully next week we'll have some maybe engineering topic if Yaknish will be back. So stay tuned. Signing out, this is Jim. This is Mitch.